1941, the Nazi military had pretty much gained complete dominance on the European continent. And the British were still giving them trouble and holding strong, but the Nazis had pretty much gone from victory to victory to victory with very little hindrance. In fact, Hitler and his generals were so confident of their power and the speed of their military to gain victory that they decided in June of 1941 to turn their backs on their former allies, the Russians, and to attack them by surprise. As I said, it was June, and the bitter Russian winter was still five months away. And given the speed of their victories up until that time, the Nazis were convinced that their war with Russia would be over long before winter arrived. And they were so confident, in fact, that they did not even supply their soldiers with winter gear. But if you know history, you know that the war on the Russian front did not come to a quick end. In fact, it lasted well into the winter and beyond. And many of Hitler's soldiers, most of whom were not issued winter clothes, froze to death in the incredible cold of the Russian winter. The battle with Russia clearly took much longer than was expected, which meant that the soldiers were unprepared for what was coming. And here in our text this morning, Jesus addresses a similar expectation. Now his followers aren't planning war, but they are expecting specific things to happen when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the capital city. And they expect that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he will launch his kingdom, and his kingdom will overpower the Romans, and it will reconstitute Jewish authority, and it will lead to peace, a peace that will last forever. Like they expect Jesus to be made king and for his kingship to never end. And they expect all of this to take place within the next several days, or at least the next several weeks, as they prepared to enter Jerusalem. Now, I say all of this because this is the backdrop, this is the background, this is the reason Jesus gives this parable of the Minas. And just as a reminder, a parable is a story with an eternal truth, or uh, as Pastor Tony Merida writes, a parable is a story with a punch. It's meant to deliver a punch, a significant, central, eternal truth. And notice how Jesus sets up this parable in verse 11. The word of the Lord says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus tells this parable to correct the expectations of his followers. He tells this parable to reframe their timeline. Now, before we get too critical of Jesus' followers, which is easy to do, let's acknowledge that they got some things right. So, for example, Jesus' followers got Jesus' identity 
largely right. They understood that Jesus was the long-predicted and long-awaited Messiah, the one whom God would send to them to deliver them, to set them free. They also got Jesus' mission largely right. They knew that Jesus had come to launch a kingdom, and that kingdom that he would launch would be the kingdom of God. They also got the location right. They knew about the prophecies concerning the city of Jerusalem. They knew that Jerusalem had significance as the place where God's kingdom would take shape. But here's something they got wrong. They misunderstood the timing of this kingdom. They expected, as Luke tells us here in verse 11, an all-at-once kingdom, right? A a zero-to-one-hundred kingdom as soon as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And yet what becomes clear is that Jesus' kingdom as an already-not-yet kingdom. Already he's inaugurated the kingdom. The kingdom has arrived, but it's not arrived in all of its fullness. And so Jesus' primary point in telling this parable is to let them know that they should expect to wait for the fullness of the kingdom to arrive and that they should prepare now to be faithful in the waiting. Or to put it another way, Jesus gives them and us this parable so that we might have right expectations about the kingdom and so that we might be faithful as we wait for the king. So let's look together at this parable. Look at verse 12. Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom And then return. And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained. By doing business. So in the Roman world, a a scene like this would not have been uncommon. As the empire grew, the Roman Empire, noblemen were often given jurisdiction or a kingdom or areas over which they would exercise control. So this nobleman who represents Jesus is given a kingdom. And he must go away for a while to receive the kingdom before he comes back. You can already see how Jesus is framing this parable and and how the way he is framing this parable kind of points or hints at where Jesus is headed. Like Jesus' followers might have been thinking like, wait a minute, the nobleman goes away to receive a kingdom and then brings the kingdom back? But you're already here, Jesus. You're, you're, you're about to bring the kingdom here and now in all of its fullness. And so, knowing that he would be gone for a while, the nobleman entrusts his riches to servants. He takes ten servants, and he gives each of them a mina, which is about three months' wages for an average laborer. 
But before he leaves, he gives them instructions about what they are to do with his property. In verse 13, he tells them to engage in business until I return. Those are the instructions. And go out and do what you have seen me do. And do that with what I have entrusted to you. And so given those instructions, when he returns after a long while, it's understandable that he calls his servants to him and asks that they give an account. Like what have they gained by doing business? There's an expectation here that they would take what he had entrusted to them and that they would multiply that, that they would use their master's assets for growth. Is that what they have done? Look at verse 16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came and said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. They said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So here's the the core of the parable. There are ten servants who are entrusted with their master's funds. And we have three categories of response. We're not exactly sure what all ten did with their mina, but we have three servants who I think represent these categories of of what the others did with their minas as well. The first went out and found a way to use his mina to make ten more. In fact, you can see the joy of the master here. Well done, good servant. Because he was faithful with a little, he was given authority over, responsibility over ten cities. You might imagine the the second servant is watching everything unfold in front of him and he's maybe feeling fairly good about himself. I mean, He hasn't uh, created 10 minas more, but he's created five, and so he now comes before the master. Here, I took your mina. Here are five minas more, and the master responds in like fashion. Great. Here are five cities that you will now have authority and responsibility over. And then we come to the third servant. He comes in, and he takes his mina, and he unwraps it out of the handkerchief, And he gives it back to the master. He's not even invested the money in the bank where it could earn interest. And look at what he has to say for himself. Look at the excuse that he gives. Verse 21, he says, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. 
Now it's clear in this parable that the nobleman represents Jesus Christ himself, and so we know that these things are not true about Jesus. So we're not told why exactly this third servant says this in this parable, but it seems likely one of two things are happening here. Either he completely misunderstands the character of this nobleman, or, or I guess possibly and, he's looking for an excuse. And so he invents this reason. You're a hard master, you're a severe master. And this is the same master who has entrusted some of his wealth to this very servant. Yet this servant seems to make an excuse for his laziness. In fact, if he really thought that this master were such a severe man, you would have thought that that would have led him to work all the harder at being a good steward. But here the nobleman plays along. Okay, that's your reason, huh? All right. Let's play this out. If that's what you really think of me, well, at least you could have given that mina to the bankers and they could have gotten me at least a little return on investment, a little interest. Point being, they would have at least done the minimum thing that you were even unwilling to do. His mina is taken from him and it's given to the one who multiplied his mina tenfold. Now let's just pause and back up for just a second because it might be easy to get distracted in all the details about minas and servants and taking and severe man and all these things to miss the primary thing we should notice here in this parable. Remember, Jesus is telling this parable to adjust the expectations of his followers, both then and now. And so there are two big ideas that we should glean from this parable. First, we should have right expectations about the timing of God's kingdom. We know that when Jesus arrived the very first time, he established his kingdom. But we also know that he did not establish his kingdom in all of its fullness. There is an already aspect to the kingdom of God because it is already here. And if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him, you are a citizen of that kingdom. But it is also a not yet kingdom. There are so many promises about what will happen when Christ reigns supreme. An end of sin. An end of death. An end of temptation. No more tears. No more sadness. Complete joy in the presence of Christ Jesus. Gathering around his throne, worshiping day after day our risen Savior. And yet, if you've been paying attention at all, you know that none of those promises are true right now. As we feel the aches and pains of physical life and the the sting of cancer diagnoses. The suffering that happens in interpersonal relationships, the temptations that we experience every single day, the reminders that we live in a broken and fallen world, and if we do not rightly understand what Jesus is teaching us here, it's easy to grow disillusioned or disappointed or discouraged or begin to doubt our faith when it seems as though our prayers sometimes may go unanswered. I pray for healing. I prayed for an end to the battle with this temptation. 
I prayed that, that God would restore this relationship. And, and as of right now, I still have the sickness or I still have the temptation or the relationship has not been restored. And in those moments, if we think that the kingdom of God has already arrived in all of its fullness, it's easy to grow discouraged. I think, well, where is God? Maybe I'm not one of his followers. Maybe his kingdom isn't true. Maybe his promises really aren't for me. And to forget that so many of God's kingdom promises, while yes, some of them have already arrived in Jesus' first coming, so many of them are reserved for Christ's second coming. When he comes and brings his kingdom in all of its fullness, in all of its glory, in every single promise that he has made, becomes a reality. And that's why this is so important even for us now. We should have right expectations about the timing of God's kingdom. But as I said, there are two big ideas here. And the second is about how we wait between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And the point here is that we should be faithful to the king as we wait for his return and as we wait for the fullness of his kingdom. So if our th- the first point was about the right thinking, the right expectations, this is about what we ought to be doing as we wait. Because Jesus will return. And we will stand before him and give an account of how we have used his resources, the resources that he has entrusted to us. And in fact, the primary resource, if you want to call it that, that he has entrusted to us is the gospel message itself. In fact, look at the way the first servant describes the growth of his mind. It's interesting the way he phrases this. Verse 16, remember this is Jesus giving this parable, and so Jesus himself is saying these words. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Now if you're a circler, an underliner, the word your there in verse 16 is probably a good word to circle. It's good that he rightly understands that this mina is something that belongs to To the nobleman, he is simply stewarding the mina that belongs to someone else. But also notice how he seems to describe the growth of the mina. He says, your mina has made ten minas more. It's almost like the mina is causing itself to grow. Now hold on to that thought for a minute. Because we know that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been entrusted with the gospel message, the good news of great joy for all the people. The message we've been entrusted with is the very message that Paul says in Romans chapter 1 is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And the gospel message is passed from one person to another through gospel words, through gospel speech. The message and the words about the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the servant here makes it sound as though the mina itself grew and caused the growth, it sounds a lot like the way Luke, our same author, speaks of the growth of the gospel in the book of Acts when he says things like, and the word of God increased. And the word of God grew. 
Here's the point. God has entrusted his followers with resources to be used and multiplied. And the first and primary resource we have been given is the gospel message itself. And just like the mina grew, the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And we who believe have been entrusted with this message that we might speak it and share it. But make no mistake, we are not the ones who cause the growth. We are not the ones who cause the multiplication or the increase. That is the work of God, and he has chosen to do that work through the very message of the gospel itself. This glorious message about the God who created all things and rightly deserves the worship and the adoration of all things. God who is good and righteous and holy and all-powerful. And yet, this God who has created all things and rightly deserves the allegiance of all things is not worshipped. In fact, every single person has chosen to rebel against our rightful king. We have all chosen to sit on the throne of our lives instead of rightly acknowledging the place of God on the throne. We've turned our backs on God. We failed to honor God as God. And as a result of our treasonous rebellion, we rightly deserve death. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And there is nothing that we can do to fix that on our own. We are powerless. Because even should we die and endure eternal separation from God for our sin and rebellion against him, the Bible says that is the just or fair penalty for our sin. But God in love, while we were still rebels against him, as we sang this morning, provided his own son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, to live in our world, to live without sin, although he was tempted, so that when he willingly went to the cross, he did not die for his own sin because he had none, but he took upon himself the sin of all who believe and died the death we deserve. But he didn't stay dead, did he? Three days later, God the Father raised God the Son from the dead, demonstrating that sin has been paid in full, demonstrating that God has power over even the final ultimate enemy, which is death, and he is victorious, proving to us who believe not only of our new life now by faith through Jesus Christ, but that one day when Jesus Christ returns and brings with him the fullness of the kingdom, we will receive resurrection bodies, just like Jesus. And that is the gospel message. That is the message that we have been entrusted with. But the gospel is not the only thing that we have been entrusted with. We've also been entrusted with other resources. In fact, it's easy, I think, sometimes when we think about the resources that God has given to us or to other people, we we immediately jump to other people's resources. We think, you know, if I had their gifts or their talents or their material resources, God, I would be a wonderful steward of the things that you have blessed that other person with. 
And God calls to us to be faithful with the resources that he has given to us. And what are some of the resources God has given to us? Well, well, think about your time. Time is a resource that God has given to us. How are we investing our time? How are we spending our time? It moves past second by second by second by second. Are we choosing to use our time in ways that reflect the purposes and the mission of our saving God? Are we choosing to invest our time in ways that that develop and disciple and nurture the relationships around us, that, that allow us to be about spreading this gospel message, that allow us to demonstrate the love and the kindness and the mercy of Jesus Christ with those who are made in his image. We're using our time to steward this world, inventing, creating, designing, beautifying, in ways that reflect our creative, good, beautiful God. What about our relationships? How are we stewarding our relationships? You see, the people in your family, the people in your neighborhood, the people at your work, the people on your team or in your class, the people in your small group are not there by random chance or by fate. But they are there, and you are in their lives through the providential hand of our wise God, who does nothing by mistake, nothing ad hoc. How are we, how are we stewarding the relationships around us? How are we investing our relational capital? Or maybe our abilities, think about our abilities, the abilities the Lord has entrusted to us. And again, it's so easy to think about someone else's ability or about the abilities we don't have. But what about the abilities you do have? The gifts, the talents that the Lord has given to you. How are you choosing to use those talents and steward those in ways that would honor the giver of those talents? doesn't mean, if you're a teacher, that it means that you have to just teach Sunday school then, or small group. It doesn't mean if you're a singer, you can only sing on Sundays here gathered, or some of you can work with your hands, and you can do amazing things, and you can fix things and build things. How are you choosing to use those gifts in ways that, that demonstrate the mission and the purpose of our God, the priorities of our God, the people that God cares about. Some of you have amazing creativity in your artists. How are you using those gifts to reflect the beauty of our God who has done all things well and has created a beautiful world for us to enjoy? How are you creating places and spaces and architecture and design and features that reflect the beauty and the creativity of the God who has made us in his image? Like we could go on, we could talk about our energy, we could talk about the places that God has us, even geographically. But notice this kingdom principle here in verse 26. Jesus says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
Here's a kingdom principle as we wait for the king's return. God sees and God rewards faithfulness. Now we should not read this and think, okay, well if I just have a little bit that the Lord has given to me and I'm faithful with this, then I will just have more. As though faithfulness to the Lord were some sort of spiritual pyramid scheme whereby if I just do a little bit here, then I can just get more and more and more. I can just accrue to myself whatever I want. Because oftentimes the blessings and the rewards of the Lord are not experienced on this side of eternity. And sometimes they're spiritual blessings. It's the peace of Christ that rules in our heart. It's the joy of the Lord that is indestructible to the trials and adversities of life. But the truth remains that God sees and God rewards our faithfulness as we seek to faithfully steward that which he ultimately owns anyway. But there's one more principle here that Jesus gives, and it's a principle that shows up in verse 14, but it's even more unmistakable in verse 27. So let's start first in verse 14. In fact, as this was read earlier, you probably thought, this seems like a really weird verse. Verse 14, this is while the nobleman is still afar off receiving his kingdom. The text says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So apparently there was a faction or a group within this nobleman's kingdom who rejected his authority. In fact, Jesus says they hated him. They didn't want him reigning over them. And look at what happens when the nobleman returns. Verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now this sounds jarring because it is jarring. In fact, some of you, when Amber was reading earlier, were like, I just assumed she would have stopped at the end of verse 26. But Jesus is warning all who will listen of the ultimate end for those who reject him. And this is not a good ending. Like, let's be clear, no one enjoys hearing a message like this. Just like no one enjoys listening to the safety protocol when you get on the airplane and they talk about the inflatable life raft and all the different things. But here we are warned that at the return of the king, there will be both celebration, and we talk a lot about that celebration here. We do so primarily because this time is focused first towards the believers as we gather together to be edified. But we should not also miss the fact that at Christ's return one day, those who received Christ will, yes, be rewarded, but those who rejected him will be punished. There are consequences for rejecting Jesus Christ as rightful king. And so knowing that this is what is to come, it's a gracious thing. It is a gracious thing that Jesus would warn us now before it's too late. 
Like it is a kind thing of the Lord to warn any who will listen while there is still time to turn to him for rescue. Like are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning for the salvation of your life? Are you trusting in the king who will return? That's a clear implication from the text. And we ought not to think that just because Jesus hasn't returned yet, that he won't return at all. In fact, 2 Peter addresses this very thing about those who think, well, it's been a long time since these promises were made of Jesus' return. Therefore, it's probably not going to happen. This is a longer passage, but I think it's so important, so I just want to read this section. You can follow along on the screen. Peter writes, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up by your sincere mind, by way of reminder, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior through your apostles. He's referring to this text, these texts in the Bible. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, they're they're going to say, it's been a long time and life goes on and sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset, and everything seems the same. Peter says, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's referring to the flood. He's saying, hey, God wiped out those who rejected him once. And by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. When you see beloved in there, he's speaking to the church. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. In other words, God is not bound by time the way we are. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works and all that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
Friends, this is what we are waiting for as his servants. Servants of our coming king. He will return. He will come back and we should be ready. You know, so much of the emphasis here in this parable is on correcting those who thought Jesus is going to inaugurate the kingdom. Like, it's going to come in its fullness, everything right now. And Jesus is trying to, like, say, slow down. (laughs) There's a longer timeline. But that was 2,000 years ago. And even, in fact, in Jesus' own ministry, as you read through the Gospels, he is frequently telling his followers to be ready, that he will come back at any time. So we should also hear that, that as well. I think about term papers. I know it's probably a trigger word for some, some of you right now at the end of the semester. But you know what it's like. You have a term paper that's due and you still have a number of days and you're, you're sure that you have more than enough time to finish your paper. And so when you sit down to write, like you, just, you hear the siren song of social media and you're stomach gets hungry and you decide to get a snack and then you hear the people down the hall in the dorm room talking and you decide to go join them and it is really hard to focus, isn't it? But when the term paper is due at midnight, you're like, I don't know if I'm going to have enough time. I just barely get it done and I still have some research to do. That has a way of removing all of the distractions, doesn't it? And you just kind of laser focus right in. Like, I'm not going to move from this chair until this is done because I just may have enough time. You see, we're not distracted by lesser things in those moments. And I think sometimes we as Christians think that just because we don't know when Jesus will return, it still then must be a long way off. We subconsciously think that. Because we don't know when, it must mean it'll be a long way off. As though we will see Jesus on the horizon headed our way when he returns. But that's not how the Bible describes his return. It says his return will be sudden and it will be without warning. Which should give us a healthy motivation to be about our Father's work. To be about sharing the gospel and making disciples and investing our time and our talent and our treasure in ways that honor the king. But you might be here this morning and you might be thinking, you know what, Eric, uh, this sounds great. Yes, I see this in the text and I believe that that's what Jesus is saying and calling us to. But if you knew my story, you would know that up until this moment right now, I have not done that and I have not been faithful, and I have squandered. I've been like the guy who folds it up in a handkerchief and puts it in a drawer somewhere. I've not been faithful to the Lord in the waiting. And here's the good news for you this morning. Our God is a God of forgiveness, and he's a God of second chances. He's a God of fresh starts. And as long as Jesus Christ hasn't returned yet, which as of right now, in this moment, he hasn't. He could before we leave this room. It means that there is forgiveness and there is grace and there is a clean start as we seek to walk in obedience. And here's the good news. We're going to need that all along the way as we seek to walk by the Spirit, as we seek 
to walk in faithfulness with our risen King. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for your word this morning. Thank you that you were kind enough to us to give us your truth. You've given it to us in a book that we can read. Thank you that we have your word in a language that we can understand. And we have electronic versions and paper versions, and we just, we have an abundance of ways to be able to know who you are and what you are like. And so, Father, I pray that you would cause these truths to sink down deep into our hearts and that you would remind us that just because your Son, Jesus Christ, has not yet returned does not mean he will not return. That we would not be confused about the promises you have made to us and then become bitter or discouraged as we look around at the brokenness and the fallenness of our world and as we see our own shortcomings and failures, but we would remember that there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will return. Your kingdom will arrive in all of its fullness and it will be glorious beyond our imagination. So I pray that you would make us faithful in the waiting, that you would grant us regular forgiveness, grace, because we are not yet perfect. I pray that we would walk by your Spirit, that we would strive to work out our salvation knowing that it is you who works in us to will and to work according to your good pleasure. And that we would, at your son's return, be found faithful. Not perfect, certainly not. Which is why we need Jesus, but that we would be found faithful. Bless us as we go. Bless us this afternoon and then bring us back together at four for a time together as members. Ready to celebrate who you are and all that you have done, for you are worthy. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.